Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. So Jesus said to those who had come to believe in him, If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But they answered, We are the descendants of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone. So how can you say we will become free? You see, they answered Jesus in the same way we might. I mean, we're Americans, right? We live in the land of the free. We sing songs about it. We get together and have parties and fireworks, all to celebrate our nation's freedom. But Jesus was speaking of a different kind of freedom, a freedom that can only be found in Him. He answered them, This is the truth. Everyone who chooses a life of sin isn't free. They are a slave to sin. A slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son or a daughter? They belong forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, do you believe that this uh, holiday weekend? Typically on 4th of July weekend, this would be the point where we would uh, sing a song. And we would respond to that thought that was just shared. But we're in a season uh, in the United States where the conversation about what is happening in our nation uh, is conflicted. You may be sitting here this morning and you're concerned about the direction of the United States. You're concerned about those that are leading. You're concerned about decisions one way or the other that may be made, that have been made, that are going to be made. You're concerned about what your role is. How is it that we can actually advance the cause of Christ in a generation that thinks like this and acts like this? And scriptures actually give us a plan for how to address that. What it is that we as believers are supposed to do. In fact, uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, as he is telling a young pastor how to do the work of ministry, the first thing that he speaks to him about before he tells him how to set up his elder team is how to respond to a government that will not agree with their faith. He says this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, first of all then I urge that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone for kings, for all those who are in authority, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior. Get this, this is the reason. Who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you believe that's important? Do you talk about the leaders of our nation as if they are worthy of the grace of God. (laughs) In our leadership team, we take a silent vote at that point. Don't let people know what we've decided. We have a, a tough time, don't we, speaking. If we were to speak in front of them the way that we speak about them behind our 
the strength of our computer screen, would we be embarrassed? Bigger than that, would Christ condone our attitude? This is what we talked about in the book of Daniel. There was a period of time where the king of Babylon, who had attacked his people, done wicked things, was ill. And Daniel, to the best of our knowledge, is the one who, for seven years, protected the king, cleaned up after him, to the best of our knowledge, groomed him, fed him, and kept him in a safe place until he returned to power. And I asked the question, if our governor, if our president were ill, would you be the one to take care of their ailment? Would they look to believers to be the ones filled with grace even as they tell them the truth? We need to stand firm for truth, but we need to do it in a way that the grace of Christ is elevated, not our own opinion. There are things that are right and wrong in America. We need to stand firm on what those things are. But what the scriptures tell us to do right now is to pray because that's more effective than anything else. Do you believe that God's still in control? There are things going on in our nation that are only explainable if God is the one pulling the strings rather than us. In some situations, we get what we deserve. In others, we see amazing things happening that we cannot believe. Let's pray that God would be glorified. Amen? So we're going to pray. Pray with me. Father, we do ask right now, as we consider what's going on in our nation, and we think about uh, titles like those that are in the presidency, in the House, the Senate, as we think about what's happening at the Supreme Court, across our nation, leading our states, governors, leaders, other politicians. Father, you have smuggled into their number Christians who are able to give voice to the truth. You have placed people all around our nation in there uh, with a focus on grace. I pray that you would energize their voice, that you would empower them to speak the truth, but to do it in love. We do pray for these individuals. It says here, first of all, of first importance, that they would be saved. The term used there is intercessions. It's only used all the rest of Scripture of Christ interceding before you on behalf of others. Father, help us to plead before you that they would get it right, that they would hear from you, that they would bend their knee, break from the direction that would run with man, with sin, with satanic agendas, and that they would run to you. Father, we do pray that grace and peace would fill our land not because of some secondary effort, but because the Spirit of God working through your people, the church, would rise up. And through blessing, through showing actively what it looks like to live like a Christian, to live with hope, to speak when it is appropriate, or to silently serve, Father, we pray that you would find us always being a picture of love. We do pray for their salvation. We pray for wisdom. We pray that at times, Father, you would cause those that are wicked to make good decisions on accident because you have pressed that into their only choice. Direct, we pray, that we might live peaceful, quiet lives, thoughtfully focused on you. Father, we're not here for just comfort, but we do wish to be at peace with all men because of what you have done in our life. Help us to live that out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Man, I think uh, those songs hopefully have done something to prime your hearts to be ready to receive the word this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of our summer series called God's Heart, Our City. And what we wanted to focus on for this summer was a, a charge to our church to begin to think about how God needs to prepare us to be able to be effective to reaching our city, both now and in the, the vision that was casted a few months ago for our city in the next five years. And what we wanted to do in these early weeks of the summer series was to begin to consider what is it that our city needs? What are their greatest questions? What are the things that the church needs to be prepared to be able to help them with? What are the obstacles that are in the way from faith and belief? And what we have come to believe and come to know is that uh, we can't share something with this community that we're not confident of ourselves. We have to, we have to know the answers for ourselves and to believe in them. And so we've, uh, we've invited some guests uh, throughout the summer that are going to help us be able to consider this idea of questions and culture. I'm reminded of a story in Mark chapter 9 where there was a father who had a son that had been struggling with demon possession, had gone to Christ asking for help. And he said this, he said, but if, if to Christ, he said, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And I think there's something in that passage that that we can resonate with, is that we believe in God's word. We want to follow him. And yet there are times where we have doubts. We struggle with what we know to be true and what we're experiencing in our feelings and in life. And so this morning, I'm very excited to to welcome our guest speaker, who's going to help us explore the topic of what do we do with our doubts a little bit more. So I'm going to invite Casey up this morning. Can we give him a hand? Oh, we're thankful for you. Thanks, Pete. Thank Great you. to be here, you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, uh, I've had the chance to get to know Casey a little bit, just communicating with him and lining him up to come out this week. But Casey, tell us a little bit about who you are. You're, you're new to us this morning. Uh, but tell us a little bit about you and your family. Yeah, good morning, guys. We're flying out uh, to visit you guys from Chattanooga, Tennessee, so on the East Coast. So we're feeling wide awake. I mean, we're three hours ahead, doing great. Enjoyed your nice, cool uh, day today. So thank you for that. Actually, genuinely, thank you, because it's a broiler uh, in Tennessee uh, most of the time. So I work with the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, my job is to write on current events, essentially. So nice, easy, laid-back job, and uh, no worries at all. So that, that's what I do. One of the things that I told Casey is that uh, he's going to bring an energy this morning that I think you guys are really going to appreciate he reminds me a lot of our very own Tim Saffield, so it's going to be really good. But Casey, uh, you've been doing work, uh, you're currently with the Colson Center, you've done a lot of work in the area of apologetics and, and writing, but tell us about like, what's kind of developed as your passion for this topic of worldview and apologetics. Yeah, man, I, uh, so before I lived in Chattanooga, I lived in New England for a number of years, so in Boston specifically. There's like 30-something universities right there and like 300,000 college students. So before I do what I do now, our, my goal was evangelism through apologetics. And that was so fun because uh, there's a moment where people think they have the answers of the gospel, 
But, but they actually don't. They have a crust that they've, you know, maybe received, like an impression from culture. And my passion, both for believers and for people who aren't Christians, is to just see them, like, punch through that crust and, and experience the true answers that we have in the gospel. I think of it like an aquifer, you know, and, and you might think you're in a desert, but sometimes you just punch through and, and find those answers and the water from the aquifer just comes out. That's the moment that I actually, that I love, that gets me so excited. And I've had the privilege of seeing that on uh, so many college campuses and churches uh, in, in my work with apologetics. And, and I find that translates really well, whether we're talking about worldview or even uh, current events, because there's a gospel heart there um, that I see demonstrated actually so well through you guys and through Pastor Justin and, and that prayer that we just had for our country. And that gospel heart for people is actually refreshing. Mm. And they don't always realize it. So, so that's my passion. One of the things we talked about a little bit uh, over the last couple of days is just some of the trends that you're seeing and some of the attitudes that the church has kind of developed towards the, the battles we're facing with popular culture and the ideology of our, our country. Tell us a little bit about like what you have been doing with Colson Center to try to address that attitude. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit about Chuck Colson, I guess. If you've never uh, heard his story, Chuck was in the Nixon White House and his nickname uh, given to him by the press was Nixon's Hatchet Man. So they said about Chuck that he would run over his own grandmother if it meant helping President Richard Nixon accomplish his end. So he, he was kind of the dirty tricks guy uh, for the Nixon White House. Well, when Watergate started to unfold and that dragnet started to pull in the most powerful men in, in the world at that time, uh, Chuck had this encounter with the gospel through a friend who just shared with him, I mean, just really the meat and potatoes gospel. And, and Chuck Colson, you know, who lived his life in this position of power, he encountered something that he had never experienced before. It brought him to his knees. And long story short, through the process of going to prison, he, uh, he stepped into that gospel story and, and lived the rest of his life uh, starting a couple different ministries. Prison Fellowship is one. And then the uh, Colson Center for Christian Worldview is what we do. But all that to say, Pete, um, I really feel like there's so much to learn from Chuck. What, what he would often say is that the kingdom of God will never arrive on Air Force One. <laughs> and he knew that firsthand, right? He'd been in the position of power. And so there's something there for us. I, I just want to say, like, what we do as Christians in the public arena matters, but how we do it matters just as much. Because how we do it reveals where our ultimate value truly lies. And that's the kind of wisdom from God that's actually going to confound the wisdom of the world. That, that uh, in the wisdom of the world, it's like you get your biggest stick and you just hit your political opponent with it as hard as you can. And maybe that will get them to be quiet and shut up for long enough for us to ram, our, you know, whatever our agenda is. And just we're, we're to do politics differently as citizens of a higher kingdom. Um, yeah. So we... We're thankful for you, and uh, those are some great things that you've seen in, in the heart that I think you're going to communicate this morning. I'm going to pray for you and let you Love preach. That. We've asked you to preach the word this morning and deliver us something from God. So let me pray for, for him. Would you join me? God, we just thank you for Casey. We thank you for his wife, Hannah, for coming out here to Oregon this morning. And God, we pray that you have uh, given him clarity this morning to deliver a message to us from your word. Uh, that's meant to stir our hearts and our affections for you. God, challenge us, encourage us, and give us clarity for the days ahead. Use Casey now. Speak through him, God. We pray this in your son's name.
Amen. Amen. Uh, yeah, like Pete just said, I'm actually not here alone. My wife, Hannah, is in the audience. I'm not going to point her out because she would hate that. She'd never forgive me. Um, uh, but we're newly married. We actually got married on New Year's Eve of this last year. So we've been married like exactly six months. Thank you. Anyone who meets us immediately knows I just married so far out of my league. Uh, but we joke that, so uh, we live at Covenant College uh, where she's a hall director. So I always joke that God had her safely cloistered away on a mountain for me uh, until we could meet um, just recently. So um, today I want to talk to you guys about something that's near and dear to my heart, both with the college students that, that we interact with, but just for the church as a whole. And it's a Christian philosophy of answers. A Christian philosophy of answers. The question I want to ask is, what will it feel like to have the right answers about God, life, and the universe? What's that going to feel like? Uh, philosophy is a big word, but it really just, to me, means that you've put some thought into things ahead of time, right? Uh, so, like, if you have a philosophy of uh, milk and cereal, like, if... Do, Raise your hand if you put the cereal in the bowl first and then the milk. Raise your hand. Okay, that's the correct way, actually. And just, I'm going to out you, but raise your hand if you're one of the freaks who puts the milk in first and then you let the cereal just kind of float willy-nilly on top. Raise your hand. Okay, well, that's good. I'm glad we're actually all agreed on that. So we, we all have a correct philosophy of milk and cereal in this room. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, I just want to talk about a Christian philosophy of answers. I want to put some thought in ahead of time, specifically on that question. What will it feel like to be living the true answers? Because this question matters. We live in a culture that sees skepticism as intelligence, certainty as foolishness, and feelings as the only reliable guide to truth. You know, as, uh, as 21st century Americans, we're living in that philosophical sea. And I don't care what side of the political aisle you're, you're on. We're all in that together. Skepticism as intelligence, certainty as foolishness, and feelings as the only reliable guide to truth. Um, and it's not just spiritual truth. We are living in an age of pervasive distrust. We doubt what we read on the internet political parties, news sites, Yelp reviews, our HOAs, airlines, supermarkets, police departments, and school boards. In fact, just about the only person that I personally trust out there is my barber. <laughs> and even then, it's like she took a little bit too much off the top. So last time, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to go back and trust her. We just distrust everything. They do studies where they actually measure uh, trust. And in some countries, the metric of trust is uh, surprisingly high. So Norway, Sweden, and Finland are good examples. And when they survey people, they find that uh, more than 60% of respondents in those countries think that they can trust the people around them. By contrast, uh, countries where there's a lot of crime uh, and the institutions are not trustworthy, Colombia, for example, less than 10% of people think that they can trust the people around them. And what, um, what sociologists find is that actually that metric of trust translates into real GDP. So it translates into dollars, like cash value is put on how much trust you have in your neighbors, because it's impossible to run an economy or a country where people don't trust each other. 
And America has seen a sharp decline. Over the last 50 years, Americans' trust in each other dropped from 45% in 1973 to just 30%. As of 2014. And you can imagine that was before the global pandemic, the election of 2016. You can imagine where our trust levels at, uh, for each other are at right now. How did we get here? One of my professors used to say that we're all under the influence of books we've never read. That'll preach. The truth is we're living in the wake of generations of thinkers who tried to answer that question of answers. The basic question that they have been asking over philosophy, well, one of the main questions is, what can we know for sure? It's interesting, this is 4th of July weekend. If you go back 200 years ago, we'd find ourselves in the Enlightenment, and you'd have a bunch of people who would have essentially said, oh, we can know tons of stuff for sure. You think about what our founders actually put in the uh, Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The founders were so sure, because these guys are enlightenment thinkers through and through, they were so sure that we, that we could know that everyone's created equal, that they said, it's just self-evident. That's a very strong belief in truth. Now, I do want to say that they might have overshot just how much we could know based on pure reason alone. After all, if you look at human history, it has not been self-evident to most human cultures that all people are created equal. And actually our founders were getting to the extent they got that idea, to the extent they actually lived it out, they were getting it from a uniquely Judeo-Christian perspective that said, we're made in the image of God. And that's why we're equal. But if you were to ask them, what can we know for sure? They would have said, oh yeah, like basically everything. We can deduce from pure reason nearly everything about the world. What if we ask today, what can we know for sure? The answer we're liable to get and the answer that I've gotten on so many college campuses is barely anything at all. Barely anything. Existentialist thinkers like Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Frederick Nietzsche, all attacked the idea that we can know things for certain. So if God is real, if he is, we really have no way of knowing. If right and wrong exist, they mostly exist as social constructs, things that we've invented as people to just help each other get along. But they're not real. And if they were, we, we, we can't really know whether or not they real, that, that they are real or what they are. Right? And the takeaway of our culture is this, and th this is the sticking point for us. If you want to know what's true, you don't need to look out there at the evidence. You need to look in here at how you feel. That is our culture's philosophy of answers. If it doesn't feel true, if you don't actually feel euphoric about your answer at all times, then change it, switch it, follow your inner star, follow what you feel to be the most true. And the consequences of that belief are wreaking havoc on a generation of Christians. So today I want to talk about a Christian philosophy of answers. And I want to go to scripture. And I think the counsel of scripture is going to give us three main takeaways when it comes to what we should expect the right answers to feel like. And it's, here, here are the three takeaways. I'm just going to roadmap this ahead for you guys. The first one is we should doubt our doubts. We should doubt our doubts. We should expect to doubt. And then third, we should ask our way to better answers. Doubt our doubts, expect to doubt, 
And we should ask our way to better answers. So on that first one, just really quickly, we should doubt our doubts. The, the verse for this section is really simple. It's Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. The first to state his case seems right until someone else comes and just asks simple questions. See, at first, our culture of skepticism is very convincing. And, and if you think about it, this is true of all skepticism, really. You, sometimes you just have to imply skepticism to get people to back off of their position. For example, sometimes I'll walk out as a, a newly married man and I'll be wearing an outfit. And my wife will just ask a simple question. Oh, you're wearing that. You guys know, I'm sure a lot of married people in here actually have experienced that from their spouse. Just the raise of an eyebrow, so subtle. And I'll just, I won't even, now I'll just turn around and just go back and change clothes. Like I already know where that's going to go. It's just the implication of skepticism. It feels convincing. On college campuses everywhere, I'd hear things like, so we'd go out and we would engage a campus with, with all the Christians. And what we would try to do is invite people to a, a talk, like a worldview talk, where we'd just say, listen, we're the Christians on campus. We want to present our case on X, Y, or Z question. You know, is there evidence for the soul? Or why would Jesus be the only way? to know God. Come bring your questions and engage us. And we get into these conversations and uh, over and over again, I'd hear things like this. Listen, man, uh, that's great for you guys. Actually, you know, I, I like that you found your answers there, but to me, all spiritual claims are just vague and unverifiable. There's, there's no way we can actually know what's true. Or they'd say like, I don't think we can know anything about God one way or another. Or they'd say, listen, like people's bias just always keeps them from seeing the truth. So you Christians, you're always going to find a way to see, a way to justify what it is that you believe. But you know, when I go talk to like my staunch atheist friends, they're always going to find a way to justify what staunch atheists believe. And so I just, I don't think there's a way we're going to know the truth about God in the first place. And so it's just better to just like not argue about it. Those are claims to skepticism. And the implication is that if you're certain about everything, and only if you are certain about everything, then by all means be a Christian. But if you feel any doubt, you're basically better off being an agnostic or probably just to be safe an atheist. But the truth is we need to doubt our doubts. Why? First of all, pure skepticism has limits. If someone says, I don't think we can know anything about God one way or another, the question that I learned to ask over time was this. So tell me, how, how do you know that we can't, can't know anything about God one way or another? And Christians, we don't want to do any like gotcha tactics. That's not why we're out here, right? Actually, we're here to listen to people and to, and to engage them with truth and clarity. But that question is actually helpful. I, I would just laugh. I'd be like, hey, like, bro, you, you actually seem to know pretty confidently that we can't know anything. How? Because if your premise is true, it would seem like you can't know that we can't know everything. <laughs> or another example, sometimes people say, listen, People's bias just always will keep them from seeing the truth. There's just no way of knowing the truth about God one way or another. And I would just say, how do you know that that's not your bias? Saying that everyone's just biased and will never know the truth. You actually seem to see through the bias on that one pretty clearly. Pure skepticism has limits. 
And the other important point is this. If we can't know anything about the world one way or another, then why in the world would we opt for atheism or disbelief in God? If, if we're getting in the car and uh, I buckle my seatbelt and I look over and uh, you don't buckle your seatbelt and I go, hey, you're going to buckle your seatbelt? And you say, you know, I just don't really have enough information to make that decision. I've heard some people like to buckle their seat. I don't know. I just, for me, I'm just like on the fence. You're not actually telling me you, you uh, don't know enough. You're actually telling me you, you're going to make a decision in one direction. You're opting to not buckle up your seatbelt, which tells me that in practical real life, you actually have enough information to say, it's just not worth it for me to do this. Life requires action. And the same thing applies to spiritual questions. If you choose atheism as your default, it's not a sign that you don't think you can know enough about the universe. You're actually saying you already think you do. And you think it's just more likely that there's no God. So, the first tool in, in your toolkit that I just, I think Christians need to hone right now. In every spirit, our calling is to push back against the spirit of the age with the principles of scripture. And I think in this age, we need to doubt our doubts. Because if we don't, we'll just end up doubting everything. The first to state his case seems right until someone comes and cross-examines him. We should doubt our doubts. And here's the second piece from scripture I think we need to hold on to. We should expect to doubt. So a little bit about my story. I grew up in a really staunch Christian home. My dad works for a Christian marriage and parenting ministry. And my parents gave me the huge benefit of actually living out their Christian values. I saw it firsthand. I went to uh, Taylor University, which is a, a small Christian university. So about 2,000 students on that campus. And by the time I graduated Taylor, I was like, I'm the man. You know, like, I'm awesome. Basically, I have this down. I'm incredible. I've learned everything there is to learn. Thank you. I had a buddy reach out to me and he's like, hey, okay, I've heard about, this is crazy, but go with me. I've heard about this program. It's called the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. It's at Oxford University in the UK. Let's just, on a whim, just see if we can get in. And I was like, I don't know, man. I, I'm busy. Like I, I have, set. he's like, just do it. The, I did the application. It'll take you 10 minutes. Long story short, he's a liar. It took hours and hours and hours of applying and just like, Hail Mary, let's see if we can get into this program. By God's grace, we actually did. We got into this program at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. And I show up to Oxford, still pretty much riding high on my Christian undergrad education, which by the way, was, was pretty good, actually. My, our philosophy professors were amazing. But I got to Oxford and I realized something really quickly. Oxford is filled with very smart people. <laughs> and you don't actually need to find that out for yourself. They'll tell you. They'll, They'll just tell you that they're smarter than you. On like the first day, uh, I went to like this wine and cheese mixer, because that's what you do in England. And, uh, and I was like, mm, yeah, I'm in the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Ooh, come at me. And here's, here's this faculty of theology at, at Oxford University. And we're talking, and he's like, oh, why are you here? And I'm like, oh, I'm here to study Christian apologetics. He's like, well, I'm, a, I'm actually a professor of theology at Oxford University, and he just asked me one simple question. What was Jesus' central message? <laughs> and I looked at him. 
Because listen, you guys, when an Oxford professor asks you a question, they mean every word. What he didn't ask me was, why did Jesus come to earth? Because I have a great answer for that. It's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I've known that one since I was five years old. But this professor said, wait, what was Jesus's central teaching? Like, what was his message? What did he preach on the most? And in all my life as a Christian, I had never been asked that question so directly. So I had nothing for him. I really was like, I don't know. <laughs> Humbled. But he, he was very gracious. He actually said, well, it's, it's the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. If you read the gospels, you'll fi- actually find that that's what he preached on the most. Then I had another professor um, who uh, was a stalwart believer, this one. Not everyone who teaches theology at Oxford is a Christian by a long shot, but this one was. He did a lecture on low-level creeds. Low-level creeds are just things that you've believed in your life um, without actually putting the thought into it, right? You can see where that's going. He actually, this professor said, most of the things people believe are just low-level creeds. Someone said it, you went, nice, I believe that. Never look a gift horse in the mouth, mouth or something, you know? And that exploded my world, actually. I started to go, wait, have I really put the thought into this? Like, I don't need, I know, I know nothing. I went from thinking, I know basically everything. I have it figured out. Big fish, small pond. Now I'm in England going, I don't know anything. And what that did was lead to doubt in my heart. And if you've ever experienced doubt before, you know what a haunting, terrible experience that is. It really feels like life drops into sepia tone. And you're reading the same Bible verses, but you're like, ah, ah, I don't know if I, this just doesn't feel the same. Like, do I really believe this? It's terrifying. And then what happened to me was I turned on what, I, what I've since called meta-doubt. Meta doubt. So like the meta of something, you like go out a layer, you know, like an inception, they have a dream within a dream, right? So it's like a meta dream. Meta doubt is the experience of feeling doubt because you're feeling doubt. And that started to genuinely, you guys, rock my world. I started to go, wait, this isn't me. I've built my whole life on this identity as like the solid Christian kid. I mean it. And I had a seriously, I had a strong faith. I knew Jesus. So what the lie that I started to the feel or the, the idea that I started to hear was, if I'm doubting, how true can this whole thing be? And it spun me. I wrote so many journal entries that I'll never show to another person probably. And a crazy thing happened. It forced me back to the word of God. It forced me away from those low-level creeds, and back to the living and active word. And here's what I found. The Bible actually predicts and explains our feelings of doubt. If you think the Bible is a hall of fame where everybody just hits home runs all the time, you might be reading out of like a different translation or something. Because that's not the story I read. Sarah laughs at God's promises. Job questions God's goodness. God tells David in First uh, and Second Samuel again and again, David, don't take a census, okay? Just don't. Don't do it. I'm your God. I put you on the throne. Don't take a census. You got one job. Don't take a census. What does David do? 
He takes a census. He's like, oh, but I just, I really want to. I really want to know how many horses and stuff I have. So he takes a census. It's an act of doubt. He disbelieves the God who helped him kill Goliath. He questions it. Right up until his resurrection, Jesus' own brothers are cynical towards him. They actually didn't believe. And I want you to consider that the mother of all examples to me is Peter. The guy who Jesus says, this, you are my rock. I'm going to build my church on you. Peter is one of Jesus' inner three. He saw him transfigured on the Mount of Olives. He saw him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He was in the boat when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. And yet when Jesus starts to say things like, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem and he will be betrayed. Peter in his zeal says, Lord, even if everyone else betrays you, I will never betray you. I will follow you to the death. But what happens? Matthew 26, 31. Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Yet that very night, the rooster crows three times and Peter has deserted Jesus in his moment of agony. When you start reading scripture through this lens, it, at first it just bugged me so badly. I was like, ah, oh, can, like, can someone do it right? Like just someone, please. And then you start to find actually the story of scripture in the words of my friend Sam Albury, is not about God rewarding good people. It's about God being kind to bad people. And that's actually comforting. It shows me that scripture knows I'm going to doubt. Not because my answers are untrue, but because I'm a person. I'm a, I'm a fallen human being living in a wild and crazy world. And I am blown around by every wind of teaching in my heart. And you change one set of circumstances for me and I will question the things that I hold the most dear. And you know what? People question things that are obviously true. The, the movement of Holocaust denial is growing in Europe right now. I mean, that's a serious example. A trivial one is how many of us eat dessert? Even though again and again, people are like, yeah, you should lay off on the dessert. But we're like, oh, I'm just gonna choose not to believe that, you know, in this moment. People question things that are obviously true. And scripture predicts that. C.S. Lewis put it really well. He said this, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. Man, I want you to just hold on to that from one of the, uh, like, the goats of the Christian walk, C.S. Lewis. But he goes on, he says, but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or, I've, uh, or even a sound atheist. But just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. <laughs> Drop the mic. 
So we should expect to doubt. And listen, what this safely means, if anyone in this room is experiencing doubt, is this. You can drop the meta-doubt. If a piece of you is like, I shouldn't be doubting, how true could it actually be if I'm doubting me? Drop that. Because God's not naive. He's not shocked that you're doubting all of a sudden. He knew from the beginning of creation that you were going to go through this. That's why he gave us the Bible. So do away with meta-doubt. Expect to doubt, even if your answers are true. It's just part of the process. But the third thing I want to challenge us to do is this. Ask our way to better answers. As Christians, we should ask our way to better answers. Listen, what didn't happen uh, to me in Oxford was that someone made some new surprise, like slam dunk argument against Christianity. There was no like checkmate Christian moment for me. What happened was that smarter people repeated the same arguments I'd always heard. And I went, oh, oh, I don't know. Maybe I should pay attention now. I didn't get a pat on the shoulder for giving the right answer. And that unnerved me completely for a while. But in that season, the Lord taught me something. And it started with this question. When Peter says in Matthew 26, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I'll never betray you. Who is that a statement of faith in? Yeah, it's not a statement of faith in Jesus. That's a statement of faith in Peter. And I found that my faith was not in Jesus sometimes. It was in Casey. And Casey is a really wimpy foundation for your life. Don't build your life on Casey. Don't do it. I'm not even able to build my life on Casey. But even worse, that's just not Christianity. So if we profess to be a Christian, it means we build our life on Christ. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Just looking at culture, and I know you feel this here in Salem, Oregon. I know you're feeling it, because we all are. We're feeling it in Tennessee. We're feeling it in Georgia. I mean, across our country, I wonder how many of us are realizing the foundations we've built our lives on are not actually the rock of Christ's words, but the sifting sands of something else. I grew up in a, uh, just a brief, glorious window where Christian rock was incredible. <laughs> Anyone else in here? Any other like millennials? Oh man, it was like, mm, yes, we're doing it, guys. We're doing it. Like the devil doesn't have all the good music. We are killing it right now. Reliant K, Switchfoot, Gunger, Thousand Foot Crutch, Skillet, Stellar Cart, Jars of Clay. I mean, I went to some banger concerts as a teenager where they sang about Jesus. In fact, one of my favorite bands was Disciple, where they screamed about Jesus. They were like, Jesus loves you. <laughs> and mosh pit and sweat. It was amazing. It was a great time to be 14. 
And listen, like, I'm not disillusioned. I still think it's awesome. Hannah will catch me just blasting Reliant K some days. And I'm like, it's just a Reliant K kind of day. I don't know. So that stuff is cool. It's good. Christians should make good art, okay? But I wonder if an entire generation of young Christians sort of accidentally soaked in the idea that what it feels like to be a Christian is to have all the best music or at least like comparable music. That's what it feels like. We know we're right. Actually, we know we're on top of this thing because that guy's wearing skinny jeans, you know, and he's a Christian. So, and guys, the age of Christian rock is dead. Like not really, it'll come back. But you know what I mean? Like, that's not a great foundation for your life and for your faith. I mean, I could point to so many things. Dealing with cultural engagement and, and sort of assessing the news for, through a Christian worldview. If our faith is built on the idea of Christian power in a political sense, or even Christians doing it super well in the public eye, we are going to be disappointed. We need a foundation on something deeper. And again, hear me. It's not because Christians should be like hands off the wheel when it comes to culture. We're actually, we're called to engage and press in. But our faith needs to be on Christ, the only solid foundation that there ever was. And maybe the best kept secret of doubt is this. If the God who made us to know him as our primary purpose in life, if he really loves us, then maybe the best thing he can do is let us hit rock bottom on our bad answers. He can come up to our sandcastles and just kind of let him go down so that we're forced to go back to him. I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and we had these aspen trees in our front yard that my dad planted when they were just like really little. They grew pretty big. Uh, and if you've ever been to Colorado, I mean, aspens are gorgeous. They're actually the largest organism when they, when they grow in these huge groves in the forest because uh, all the roots are interconnected and they can weather like almost anything. Huge blizzard, they're fine. Ice storm. I mean, aspens are hardy trees. But in our front yard, these aspens, there was one time it like snowed a little bit and, and two of these aspens were almost horizontal on the ground and the root system was coming up out of the dirt. And so my dad uh, borrowed a truck and we hoisted them back up. But then we were like, why are these so weak? Like they grow so well in the mountains. What's going on? And we realized something. All the root systems of these aspen trees were towards the surface. They were actually poking back up, trying to get that water because our sprinklers were actually, that were meant for watering the grass, were actually watering these aspen trees. The roots were growing so shallow because they knew they could just get shallow water. And so actually, because we wanted these trees to be in our front yard for a long time, we just, my dad moved the sprinklers away from them. Because it would force the, tr the roots of the tree to grow deep into the ground. Now listen to me, not all your doubt is God like testing you or intentionally like causing you to go through a season of drought. But I guarantee you, he will use that season to make you into the type of little Christ that he wants you to be. So what does it feel like to be a Christian? What's our Christian philosophy of answers? I think we need to doubt our doubts. 
We need to expect to doubt. But third, it's that better answers are out there. And when we feel uncertain, our calling is actually to press in. Don't ignore that doubt. Actually ask the question that's on your mind. And I can tell you through my journey that I've found the deep, the aquifer, the deep water, it's there. And I wonder, Salem Heights, if what your city, I love your tagline for this series, God's heart, your city. I wonder if what Salem, Oregon, needs from you is a group of Christians who know where the real water is and are just like so dissatisfied with shallowy answers because they're not cutting it right now. We're losing on, on the shallow answers. Amen. Because there's better answers out there. I'm going to close with one last thought on feelings. I, we began by saying that culture believes things are only true if they feel true, right? Our litmus test for what is true is our feelings. Well, I want to challenge that because there's so much wisdom in Jesus's words in Matthew chapter seven. Anyone who hears these words of mine and what? Puts them into practice is like a wise builder. And anyone who doesn't act on them is a foolish builder. That's what it is to build on the sand. It's not to like never hear Jesus's words. It's not to do what he said. And so what I'm telling young people very often, especially on our college campus is this. It's very possible to do everything Jesus tells you to do and still feel doubt. But at the same time, why would you expect to feel like Jesus says you will feel if you're never doing what he says? Why would you expect the feelings of being a Christian if we're not acting on it? And in all humility, I just want to throw this out there. How much Netflix did you watch this week? I mean, I'm nervous to answer that. I'm just not going to. But when I feel dry, where's my time going? I mean, honestly, it's just true about everything, right? Everything else in life, anything we're doing is hard. Working out, eating spicy food, <laughs> being married. Anything we're doing in life is difficult. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So Salem Heights, I challenge you to offer your city a Christianity that has been tried and that you can speak out of experience that God has gotten you through the droughts and the difficulties in your life. Press in. That's the kind of answer people are starving for. So I'm going to pray, and, uh, and I'm just going to close us out with that. King Jesus, your bride needs you. I just thank you, first of all, for the way that you look at us you're not surprised when we doubt. You're not upset at us, Lord. You actually tell us as a father has compassion on his children. So you have compassion on those who fear you because you remember that we're dust. And I imagine that like me, there's some in here who feel weak about our, our culture and the way it's going for Christians right now. There's so many scandals, Lord. There's so much division. Lord, we just need you to remind us of what's true. We need you to be with your bride. We need you to comfort us, Father. And Lord, I pray that people in this room would actually uh, 
in their own lives have a moment where they choose to press through the shallow and get to that deep aquifer of water that you promise us. You say, fountains of living water springing up from within us, Lord. So I just pray that over my sisters and my brothers here at Salem Heights, Lord. Bless them as they go forward, as they love their city, and as we all collectively, Lord, fall more in love with you. In your name, amen.